you were singing that last carol and all of a sudden you lost part of the story. And it's an important part of the story. But it illustrates a point, not purposely playing tricks on you, but it does illustrate a point that there's sometimes a key part of the story that's missing, that if you had those lines to it, it would change everything. That last stanza, let, then let us with one accord sing praises to our heavenly Lord. Why or who? That hath made heaven and earth of naught, of nothing, and with his own blood, mankind has bought. That's pretty important. And yet, a few lines of the story are sometimes missing. The lines that we've known, but... Maybe we've forgotten. And then things don't make sense and things disturb and disrupt and turn our worlds upside down because why is this like this when actually some of the early lines of the story can actually explain why is this like this? This is the first Sunday of Advent where we're pausing our series that we've been doing through, the, through the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, we, we, we've, we've arrived at chapter 10, and that last section, chapter 10 to 13, is a, is a nice pausing point in that study for us to uh, turn our attention toward Advent, just to be thinking about as, as Christmas is coming closer, to be thinking about uh, what uh, Christians around the world typically focus on. And so that an Advent candle kind of reminds us that, again, our worship in this church is not merely us and how we do things, but we are part of a body of Christ worldwide, that uh, we are participants in something big that God has done all around this world, of all nations, peoples, tribes, and tongues, redeeming to himself in Christ, in anticipation, in, in hope, of his coming again. That's the, that's the thrust of this first Advent um, Sunday. The focus is, is on hope and thus the focus on the prophets, be that prophetic hope that God has told us what he's going to do. Now, hope biblically is not a, it's not a hope-so kind of hope. You know, some of you are hoping for what you might find under the tree at Christmas, Right? I hope I might see this or that. Uh, maybe you will. Maybe you won't. But, um, and if you have the um, intuition and uh, gift-giving ability and the uh, perception abilities that, that I have, then uh, uh, Julie you know, might hope for something and I just might not ever key in on that at all. I might just miss it. But biblical hope is not that way. Biblical hope does not disappoint, the scripture says, because biblical hope is not a hope so, it is a confident expectation. It's an assured confidence that's based on, I hope this, I have this settled confidence of this, it's the evidence of things not yet seen. I haven't seen it yet, but I know it's going to be, I know that it's true because God has said it. That's biblical hope. It rests upon what God has said, and the question merely is this, can I believe it? Can I believe it? That's been the question really through human history. Can I believe what God has said? But what if, as 
we and others around us, people all around us wrestle with that. Can I really believe this thing that God has said? What if current events around us, things happening right now, actually served to validate, to affirm, to give evidence of things are as God says they are? That would help, wouldn't it? Now, I'm not talking about merely the recent archaeological discoveries, although there's been several fascinating discoveries even in, in, in the last 12 months about things relating to the biblical record in history in Israel and other places. So that can be fascinating. I'm not talking about the wars and rumors of wars or the earthquakes that have happened or are coming and other, other natural disasters that you might think, well, those are the things that are going to come with, with the Lord's second coming, right? That's not what I'm thinking about. Those things might be, but um, what I'm thinking about here is actually something that's happened that has been going on through human history, and all of a sudden, we're paying attention to it again. All of a sudden, new awareness has, has arisen on this topic, and there's a, a new campaign, hashtag me too, around this. What if the renewed visibility uh, that we are experiencing in terms of the abuse and the mistreatment of women in our society, what if that actually points to, affirms, validates something that God has told us about how things are in this broken world? And that there's a bridge from that, that there's a unique aspect of that that's actually good for us to be aware of, and, but that's actually also a bridge into the very first foundation and basis of our biblical hope in the coming of Christ. Now, that's, that's a lot to put together, isn't it? Abuse and mistreatment that's going on, and, that, and, and, and uh, that points to something in the validity of what God has said, and that connects somehow to the promise of the coming of Jesus. Can all of that be true? In one brief message, well, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. It's a story, certain elements of it you're, you're possibly familiar with. But in Genesis chapter 3, we, we answer an initial question, really. What's wrong with us? What has gone on here? In Genesis 3, in the aftermath of the fall, we have a, a description of the human condition. What is life like and why is it like this? And also we have God's promise. And God's promise is, is relating to the future. It's relating to our eternity, our destiny. And it hinges on this, if we believe it. Something that can help. Something that could also point others to that confidence in God's promise. And God's promised hope would certainly be helpful. And if this current spotlight on evil and abuse, particularly as it relates to women, if that could bridge here, that's something how we could use another one of the enemy's schemes against him and shine God's glory there. So turn with me to Genesis 3. If you're using one of the church Bibles on the tables, you would find us way early in the book. You would find us, in fact, on page number 2. Okay, Genesis chapter 3, very beginning of the Bible, Page number two, I'm going to begin reading in verse one of Genesis three. And the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, God didn't actually say that. And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat out of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, she says, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so God said, or God now asks, who told you that you were naked? Who have you been listening to? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock And above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, her offspring, will bruise your head, and you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What's wrong with us? Well, there it is. There is a, there is a, a nutshell of what happened to humanity and the trouble that has come upon us ever since because of it. First of all, the serpent comes along. He deceives Eve with have-truths. Did God really say? Is what God says really true? Can you really believe that? Does anybody really still believe this stuff that you find here? Those are the same whisperings that you will hear also. Does God really say that? Does he really mean that? Can you really believe that? Now, he, he comes along with half-truths or deceptions, use the same words in different ways. Oh, you're not going to surely die in the day you eat of that fruit. No, actually, it'll be, it'll be years later. And it'll also be that day. They don't physically die that day, but that very day they are separated from God, who is their life. 
They were separated from God that very day, and the mortality, the, the, the march toward death begins. Separated from God and his blessings and the tree of life that was for them in the midst of the garden. They, they listening to his whispers, they discard God's word. They disregard God's command and they decide they're going to choose for themselves what they want to do. They're going to choose for themselves what will be right for them and what will be wrong for them. Right and wrong is not for somebody else to decide for me. I will decide, I will determine, I will describe and define right and wrong for myself. That's what humanity has done, and that is where, where we now live. God doesn't evict them from his presence. We often think of the scene in the garden where, where, where they broke God's rule, so God is upset, so God says, okay, everybody, out of the pool. We're done here. No. They are the ones who hide because they know what they've done. You know, sometimes I used to think I had to spend a lot of time and energy convincing people that they were, were broken sinners, guilty, rotten sinners in need of a Savior. I realized that a lot of times I don't, have to, I don't have to spend a lot of energy doing that. You already know. We already know that about ourselves. We know the brokenness of ourselves. We know our own guilt before God. And we might try to hide from that. We might try to cover that up. We might try to pretend it isn't so. But we know. They hide from God. They know they're not ready. They're not suitable now to be in his presence. And yet God doesn't leave them to themselves. God comes after them. God seeks them. We are the one who runs. God is the one who seeks. That's the biblical order from the very beginning. It's still that way today. The Lord Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. God doesn't evict them. They hid. God comes with questions. Where are you? Who have you listened to? What have you done? And God knows. It's not that God isn't aware and somebody needs to inform him of what has happened here. No, God knows where they went. God knows what they've done. And God is provoking them with questions because he wants them to come out with it. He wants them to own up. He wants them to confess. It's kind of like the child playing hide and seek and hides behind the curtain so you can't find them, right? And yet the curtains only come down to about a foot from the floor. And there are those little feetsies. They're right there. Everybody knows. You can hear the giggling, but we're all going to pretend we can't. If, if their eyes are covered and they can't see you, you can't see them, right? That's the foolishness of our humanity. We all play the same game with our Father, with our God, with our Creator. It's kind of like you think that Google incognito means nobody knows where you go on the internet. Actually, everybody knows and has a record of it except you now. You're the only one that doesn't. That's the kind of way that we deceive ourselves and the things really aren't as they are. God knows exactly, and yet he asks questions that they would come to confession because it's in confession that we are forgiven. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to, to forgive us our guilt, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The, God's questions are to invite confession. When you read God's word and when it confronts you, when it questions you, when it challenges you, don't hide from that. Don't explain your way around that or away from that. Don't protect yourselves from the questions that God would challenge you with. Embrace them. Answer them. Confess in light of those questions. Is there some of this in you, my child? Yes, God, there is. Would you change that? Would you change me? Would you forgive me? So the confession points. Why is it like this? What have they done? This sin from the fall, what does it include? It includes, as we, as we read the story, that it includes an enmity or a hostility between the woman and the serpent. And between her offspring or her seed and his offspring, his seed, those who will belong to him. This hostility, first of all, we see that in human experience. You know what? Is this true? Can we believe the Bible? Let me ask you this. Do people like snakes? I should ask normally because there are some strange things among us. But generally, do people like snakes? Let me talk to you ladies for a minute. Could I buy you a new pet? A nice big one, a long, slithery one. And it could be your pet, and you could put it in a nice big terrarium right there in your living room. And you could say, that's my python right there. Isn't he lovely? No, probably not. Humans don't like snakes. Why is that? There's a biblical reason. There's something that's gone. We, I mean, some of you like cats. But you don't like snakes. That doesn't make a lot of sense. You know? I mean, I've been bitten by a cat a lot more often than I've been bitten by a snake. And yet the cat I pet and feed and cuddle and get bitten by. But the snakes I don't like. And our kind of snakes around here, gutter snakes, they, they're harmless. Not like my cat. Anyway. There's this hostility between humans and snakes, and snakes will wait and they will, they will strike. We had, we had mamba snakes in, in, in southern Africa, and uh, you could be walking along and all of a sudden it, from, the, from, the, from the back of the leg, somewhere around the calf or further down, you would get, they would strike. And within 20 minutes without an anti-venom or, or the right kind of treatment, within 20 minutes, you could die from this venom. The venom enters the bloodstream, and then it slowly works through the body and poisoning as it goes. The walk is affected, the life is affected, the heart is affected, and the heart stops. There's a hostility between uh, women and serpent. This is interesting. Between the woman and the serpent, as well as her descendant, there's this hostility. It's not just a, a general human thing. The, the spiritual enemy, Satan, behind the serpent is our enemy. But ladies, the bad news out of this chapter is he has something special against you. And I think there's a connection here. Look around the world. The norm of the world is that women are treated more poorly. Women are not treated as the complementary equal, as, a, as an heir together with God, as co-regents over creation. Most of the world, women are treated as second-class citizens. Now, I, was, I, was, I, was, I read something just recently that in Saudi Arabia, 
they are going to allow women to drive. That's a big change. That's big. What are they thinking? This is revolutionary. That's just, just a glimpse. A lot of times it's uglier than that, the kind of restrictions and the kind of assumptions and the, and the burdens that are placed. It's different in the West, and yet you still see an ugliness there. You still see, and there are women across this room that I know have experienced this. In your own lives and in interactions, out in society and at work, you have experienced abuse and mistreatment in ways that makes it obvious that you are not considered a, a complementary equal in the way that others in that environment or on that work team are. That's a reality in our world. And yet it's different in the West than other parts of the world. Now, I want to suggest to you, one of the reasons why that exists, why that is a norm in human history, that mistreatment, that abuse of women, systematically in societies, why that happens is because this world lies in the hands of the wicked one. That this world runs according to the course of his purposes. That, that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the children of disobedience. He is the prince of this world. And much of the order of this is under his influence, under his orchestration and direction. And there's this, this serpent, this enemy, ladies, he despises you. And it's, it's personal and yet it's not. The reason he particularly has something against you is because it's out of the offspring of the woman. The same woman he so cleverly deceived, it's the offspring of the woman in particular that God is going to use to ruin him. And he hates you for it. And so when you are abused and mistreated, when that happens, and it should not, it wasn't supposed to be that way, you're absolutely right, but when it does, know who's fully behind it. Now, why is it different in the West to some extent than other places in the world? Why have we had these developments in society through the history of Western civilization where there's much more of a supposed to be enshrined in our society and in its norms and in its laws and its regulations a complementary equality between men and women that you don't see in other societies? We benefit in the West from a fading Christian heritage especially based out of the Reformation. There are echoes of it in the, earlier, in the, in the early, earlier foundations out of the Roman Empire when the gospel of Christ early on in about the 4th century radically influenced the Roman Empire. Well, the, well, the empire, the world was turned upside down in the 1st century in the, as, the, as the gospel advanced. But from there, Rome's influence, but out of that, we have this dark age or this medieval period, but the light of the Reformation impacted Europe, most of Europe, in a tremendous way. It was a game changer. It changed societies across Europe, and as, as, as colonists from Europe came to North America, it, it impacted us here. And out of those changes in our society that we have benefited from for, for, for decades and centuries, that impacted the rest of the world. And yet, that's a fading heritage today. 
We do not share the same biblical core foundation as a society of why things are the way they are and how they are supposed to be. We don't share that bedrock foundation that, that directs the decisions that we make and the choices and the way that we live. And so we don't have a shared commonality, a shared point of reference any longer. And so some of these things that have been normal, even something basic about in society, the polite manners of, um, of a gentleman in ways that he would do, I have to remember, sometimes when Julie and I are walking, I have to remember, I'm supposed to be on this side, not on that side, because this is the side of the muddy road where the cars will come and, I, and I'll get splashed and so I'll keep her from getting splashed, right? That's why men are supposed to do that, but we don't really pay much attention to some of that any longer. Well, maybe we know enough to not be out walking in the muddy roads where we're going to get splashed on by cars. We. But uh, our roads are better, and uh, I could go on and on. But some of that common courtesy stuff that was normal is beginning to fade. Sometimes you might even get in trouble for opening a door for somebody. What are you implying by that? I can't open my own doors? But because of this animosity, what has grown up in our Western civilization as it was influenced by the Reformation and the Gospel... What has grown up is that men, we are to particularly care for our wives. Men, we are to particularly care for women, for ladies, because the enemy particularly has it out for her. Because God was going to use her. It is this unassuming little girl, not a little girl, young woman out of Nazareth from the family of David. And God points his finger on her and says, Mary, Mary, you're the one through, through whom I am going to send my own son. The virgin is going to be with child and bear a son. And he is going to be the offspring of the woman. You see, that's the unusual wording here. Normally we talk about the seed of the man. All through the Old Testament, the, 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 um, the genealogies are, traded, are, are, are traced rather through the man. It's the seed of the man that matters. It's a patriarchal society and structure. And yet here at the very beginning, it's the seed or the offspring of the woman. There's a hint of something that's going to be developed further. Isaiah's going to put his finger on it. Although not, he, he doesn't perhaps fully realize what he's saying when he says the virgin will be with child and will bear a son. And we'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew and Luke picked up on that. You know, what, Isaiah, what Isaiah was talking about was this. That this virgin maiden, unmarried, never known a man, she's pregnant by the power of God because the Holy Spirit has come upon her and she will be with child by the Holy Spirit. God's own promised son, untainted by Adam. A unique son who would be a sinless, fully man. The son of God who would come enter humanity, take upon himself humanity, enter our experience and the misery of it that he would take our guilt and our sin upon himself, that Satan would, would, would target him, would know him. Oh, you're the one, you're the Messiah, okay. And he would scheme and he would plot and he would arrange and he would organize an arrest and a crucifixion. And finally, can you imagine the celebrations in hell that night? We have killed the son of God. We have ruined God's plan. We have made a mockery of God's promise. God sends his son and we put him down. But that was Friday. 
Not Sunday. On the third day, he rose from the dead, according to the scripture. And when he rose from the dead, having borne our sin, and it was our sin and our guilt that held him there in that grave, when he rises and he ascends to the Father and he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high, he sits there because our sin is fully gone, fully removed, fully paid for. It is done. It is finished. And Satan has not won. No, his hold of humanity as hostages against God through sin to death has been broken. The debt has been paid in full. And I don't think Satan saw it coming. Oh, he still hates what God has done. And he still hates the woman for it. That's why it's like this. That's where this happens. And so men, men, when you then step into the gospel and the change that it makes and you live out in the light of that gospel, loving your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, you are proclaiming the light of the gospel in the midst of a darkening society. When men and women live out a complementary equality together, we are proclaiming God's restoration. When we use media, TV and movie and internet, when we use media to, to disrespect men or to objectify women, we are playing right into the enemy's evil scheme. When we see sin and fallenness in our world, And we see women especially hated by the devil in the world. We see men acting like pigs against them. We are reminded that God is right. This world desperately needs a savior. It desperately needs God to intervene. And he has and he will. Even these headlines can preach the gospel. The same, verse that, the, the, the same verse here, verse 15, that predicts this enmity, this hostility between the woman and Satan also gives the first glimpse, the first hope of what God is going to do about it. Here is the hope that God does give. The first glimpse we give of the Redeemer, that he will destroy the serpent, that he will restore humanity to living out God's image. There's this unusual phrasing of the woman's seed, the the offspring of the woman that Isaiah and Matthew and Luke pick up on. That he, this seed, singular he, will bruise your head. There is going to be a descendant who comes from the woman, not the man. From the woman a descendant is going to come and he is going to serpent bruise your head while you will bruise his heel. He will strike your head, you will strike his heel. It's, uh, sometimes we want to focus on that bruise or strike. It's the same word either way in terms of attack. He's going to attack. He will attack your head. You will attack his heel. The difference is in the, in the object of the attack. Normally, a strike to the heel, a blow to the heel is not fatal. A blow to the head is a life-threatening blow. That's the distinctive. There's going to be a difference in blow. There's going to be a difference in attack. There's going to be a difference of effect. That's what's happening here. Yes, the serpent will be successful in striking against this descendant, this son, God's son, and he was, but only temporarily. It was, in God's scheme, an injury, 
Although Jesus dies, it is a fully real human death for us in our place. But it is a temporary death because on the third day he rose again. And in rising again, Jesus destroys forever the devil's hold on humanity as hostages against God because of sin and death. Those, who love, those whom God created, those whom God loves, are seemingly lost in the devil's grip and there's no way to rescue them back and for God still to be just until God himself and his son pays the penalty in full. That wound, not permanent or ultimate, Jesus is raised, delivers humanity. God through us, God through a human crushes the serpent's head. And now, church, we live in that truth. We live in that reality such that Paul in Romans chapter 16 says that God himself will crush Satan under your feet. That is going to be our ultimate experience. We are going to see the end of Satan and his dominion. We're going to see it. But you can get tastes of it. You can get first glimpses. You can get nibbling around the edges of it. You can already step into that future victory and deliverance in having Satan crushed under your feet one step at a time in your walk with him. Every time you say, yes, this is what God said, I will believe it. You take a step on the serpent's head. Every time you say, this is what God has told me to do, I don't even fully understand it. I don't know why I should stay away from that. But I don't have to dive into the evil to know that it stinks. I will stay away from it just because God says to. And I take a step on the serpent's head. When I'm confronted by God's word, and it's uncomfortable to me, I don't want to admit it, but I do, I will confess to God. God, that is who I am. There is that in me, and I confess that to you. Would you forgive me? I take a step on the serpent's head. You see, we can live already, as Paul told that Roman church in chapter 16, God will crush Satan under your feet. We can already live in that victory that God has given us, that he, in the, very, in the very first ruin, the description of the fall of humanity, right there, God already gives us the first promise. It's called the proto-evangelium. It's called the first gospel. It's the first hint that in our ruin, God is going to redeem. And he does. God does just what he said he was going to do. Can you believe it? That's where it lands with us, isn't it? Can you believe it? What God has said he has done in the midst of the pain of childbirth through which the Savior comes. That's a testimony again that what God said is true, ladies. In the midst of childbirth, you can, rede- you can rejoice. God is right. God is right. And through that pain, God brought a Savior. Through gardening and farming with thorns and thistles. And if I, could, if I could extend that into the rest of human work and experience, when I'm working for five, bolt, for five hours trying to get one bolt free on my exhaust manifold, the futility of that. And in the midst of that, I pray, and I genuinely did, laying on my back at about 1 a.m. in the morning, and I said, God, would you help me here? I don't know what to do. Somehow that bolt came off. In the midst of our working infertility, we can admit, God, you are right, this is a broken world. It's not as it's supposed to be. And we agree with God. 
in the midst of combat between men and women where we ought to have complementary equality, where women sometimes would desire to supplant or manipulate instead of respect, and where men dominate instead of lovingly lead. We admit, God, you're right, humanity is broken, and we need you to change us. At the end of the story, God covers them. First, leather clothing, by the way. Some of you came in with leather jackets this morning. When you wear your leather jacket, remember this. God replaced fig leaves with a real covering. Leather clothes. Real garment. Do that with the tangible stuff in life that you can grab hold of. This reminds me of what God has done for me. Okay? That's a good reason, by the way, to ask for a leather jacket for Christmas, too, if you were thinking along those lines. No, no, it's biblical. See? God provides a covering for them. And there's, again, a hint of the gospel, is it? When they, they, they pulled some leaves off a tree, maybe it hurt the tree a little bit, I don't know. I've never heard a tree say, ow. But when God provided a covering for them, it cost something. The first one of these animals that they were supposed to watch over and care for, they have now brought death upon. An innocent one dies that their guilt might be covered. And there you have, again, a hint. Creation testifying to the gospel in Jesus for us. Can you believe it? Well, do snakes crawl? Genesis 3 said they would. Do people hate snakes? Genesis 3 said you would. Do women get a raw deal in this world? Genesis 3 said they would. Do people hide from another and do we hide from God? Genesis 3 describes how it happened. If you can believe that, you can also believe this. God has sought you out. God has made for you a covering by an innocent one, his son, Jesus, who died in your place. The offspring of the woman, the virgin-born son of God, will come again and fully crush the serpent's head because God has said that he will. That God already, you can believe this, God already, one decision of faith at a time, one believing God at a time, will crush Satan's head under your feet. Every choice of faith you make to believe God, to follow him and deny the devil in act of service, every time that worships and glorifies God. While we wait for the son, the son of the virgin, Emmanuel, God with us. As broken, as messed up as we are, God came to be with us. And so we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. The worship team's gonna come. We're gonna sing that song. And we're gonna turn our attention to the Lord's table that uniquely this morning is we're already gathered around. And we'll celebrate those elements together in just a few minutes. But prepare your hearts. Let that song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and, and ransom captive Israel, let it be a, a plea of faith. God, save me. I believe you. Or let it be a celebration of the cry of your heart. Thank you, God, for sending your son, Emmanuel, for us.